Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Cliff. Really excited to talk about your journey and what you're building with Cream Co. Meats. And uh, it's uh, really a lot of really cool conversations around food the last month or two. Had a lot of cool guests on talking about sort of the future of food. And before we start to talk about Cream Co., let's talk about your journey a little bit before you founded the company. Yeah, definitely. Glad to be here. So yeah, before Cream Co., you know, I kind of entered into the food industry by way of the culinary industry. So I went to Mm -hmm. culinary school, was classically trained, uh, worked professionally in the Bay Area for a number of years, and kind of had that classic line cook story where you're, you know, working the long hours, you have the the fun lifestyle, but you're kind of like, what's next? Like, where do we where do we go from here? So I was looking for new opportunities in food. I love being in food, love working in food, but didn't necessarily want to close down the line at 1 a.m. Kind of stumbled into sustainable meats uh, via this this small one of the first farm direct aggregators in the Bay Area called Pray the Ranch Meat Company, and joined them. They were like a farmers market company. They were networking with uh, farms around California bringing those products to the farmer's market. They kind of stumbled into the industry via via Pray the Ranch Meat Company and worked there for quite a long time, kind of learned the industry from the grass up, um, met with a lot of producers and farmers, worked with chefs and uh, butchered products and and value-added products. And that was really kind of my entry into the space was a very organic uh, way of of getting into it. I guess for those who don't know, starting from, from where you started, and kind of where you are now, I guess, what kind of insight can you give to sort of people who don't understand maybe the commoditized meat sort of sector and maybe traditionally what it's like to sort of factory farm of, of meat versus now we're seeing more and more companies go to, you know, sustainable meat, regenerative meat even, and, and sort of this new landscape of what things once were to what they are becoming now. But give us an idea a little bit of like, currently what the conditions are like for the production of, of meat at, at, at mass scale? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. And so, so much of kind of like these, the, the new age terms, you know, sustainable, yeah. generative, et cetera, is really kind of going back to the way things were yeah, right, before right. everything was industrialized. So now we're, you know, we're qualifying it differently, but really it's kind of like a return to the old ways. And I think it was really kind of around World War One, World War Two. And even prior to that, but in a serious way around the world wars, that we really started to industrialize food production in America. And it was really kind of a product of like weaponizing food, mm-hmm. uh, being able hmm. to produce food as like quickly, as efficiently as possible. And a lot of that, you know, was centralized and industrialized. It was built around crops that we could quickly grow, high energy crops that we could get out to our animals to feed them. And so we created this system where we were able to produce a lot of food, but it was relatively low quality food. And that's kind of where we're at today with these mass industrialized, centralized uh, systems of food production, whether it's, you know, corn or soy or beef and pork. We've built this factory farming system where we've prioritized you know, speed of production above everything else, speed and cost of production above everything else. And we've ended up with these foods that are really pretty bad for you, uh, pretty bad for the environment, bad for the animals. And we're kind of seeing that that backlash. We're, we're seeing the the trends start to shift the other direction now. I guess when you, you sort of made the transition from, you know, working for a company, seeing 
what the industry's like from the grass up, like you said, love that, love that phrase. Uh, what made you decide to start Creamco? And maybe tell us a little bit about what it is and sort of the mission of it. Yeah. So, you know, our, our mission is to create new opportunities for people to enjoy meat responsibly. So that's a pretty simple mission. And we're doing that by creating a platform for access. Uh, and it's really about access. You know, it's, it's moving away from these centralized models to a decentralized regional food hub model. Um, so it's access not only for the consumers, but also access to the infrastructure for producers, for ranchers and farmers. So that's really what we're trying to do is kind of decentralize our food system and bring it back into our regional marketplaces so that anybody can get involved. Any small rancher with you know 50 acres of land, 10 acres of land, could, could start to contribute and produce and create a more resilient food uh, ecosystem for, for their local area and, and beyond. And that's really kind of what we see as being the, the future of food are these, these um, more decentralized regional food hubs that are servicing their community, not only from a food point of view, but also creating jobs and you're just creating more equity in their communities. Oh, Cream Co. works a little bit is that you create relationship with sort of local ranchers, family farms, and you go direct to them and you buy wholesale from them essentially, and then you sort of sell it online. Is that a little bit how, how it works? Yeah. So, so we, we have a, a variety of ways in which we work with producers. I mean, some, some of our ranching partners are you know, pretty established. They've been in the marketplace for a long time, but a lot of our ranching partners are just trying to figure it out. They're trying, like they have right. the land resource, they have the, they, they have the ability to raise animals but they don't have access to the marketplace or they don't know what they should do with their land. And that's really our specialty is like finding, finding these really interesting um, landowners or land managers who want to do better with their land. They want to convert from like old conventional systems towards a more sustainable and regenerative system. And maybe they've you know already started that journey a little bit, or maybe they're right at the beginning of that journey. A really good example of that this year is with PT Ranch, which is a family owned and operated ranch. It's a little bit outside of Lodi, California. And they kind of already started their journey to move towards regenerative, but they're trying to figure out how to generate more revenue from their land. Like, where do they go from here, right? Like they want to employ these better practices. They want to raise animals correctly, but they need to find partnerships or access to a marketplace to be able to do it at scale so that it makes economic sense. So it was a perfect opportunity for Creamco and PT to partner up and throw some serious scale behind an animal product coming off of their farm. So we launched the first ecological outcome verified pasture-raised turkey uh, with them this year in California, um, which is a regenerative certification. And they were able to, to raise 2,000 turkeys for us, for us to sell through our wholesale and direct-to-consumer channels. And so that's a big boon for the farmer because they're able to really put their land to work and generate a really strong uh, you know, revenue pipeline from that. And it's great for our consumers because they get to enjoy something that's completely unique and interesting. And it's also having a regenerative net positive impact on, on the land. When you, you know, when we say we go to our sort of local grocery stores, are they are the suppliers of the meat normally in grocery stores not sort of local farms and ranches like have, that you have partnered with? Is that sort of different? The, the majority of the meat that 
that you're going to find in the marketplace really is coming from more commodity and conventional producers. So, you know, you're not seeing a ton of local products in your, in your kind of like larger regional big box grocery store chains. Maybe there's some, but there's not a lot. And, you know, we kind of talk about the meat industry. We call it the spectrum of sustainability. And mm-hmm. on one end, you have, you know, commodity, which is like the worst of the worst. Right. Animals are, are being treated wrong. They're eating their own diet. On the other end, you have like your lonely Sonoma County rancher that has like 10 head of cattle, but they're the most amazing, most beautiful head of cattle right. you've ever seen. Right. So the, cream the, the, gu- the Gucci of meat, if you will. The Gucci of meat. Yeah. You know, like the, un- the unrealistic, but idealistic, like, like version of what everybody thinks that they want to right. eat and should be eating. Right. So, you know, we really operate in that middle point, which is the never ever point. So that means that like no antibiotics, no hormones mm-hmm. are ever used in our, in our animal production whatsoever and up. So we don't touch commodity or conventional products whatsoever. And that's pretty rare. And from that natural point and up, if you're like taking a step back and looking at the greater industry, that makes a very small percentage of the meat that's actually out there and available in the marketplace. Um, You know, the vast majority is commodity and conventional products where they are using hormones, antibiotics, um, and doing all other types of inhumane things to those animals to produce them. It's not just the the inhumane sort of like practices, but there's also there seems like there'd be a health component to it as well for us as you know a species to all the sort of the hormones and everything sort of being put into to our meat that we consume. It, it seems like that hasn't been really spoken about, I guess, enough because we we I don't know. I guess I guess looking at the organic part of it is, and the GMO part of it is a really much more bigger deal, not only for quality, right? And taste and, and the humane part, but also from a health point of view. I, I wish that was, I guess, like expressed more, right? In the industry of like how healthy meat should be versus like how it's not, right? Because it's so commoditized, it's become, it almost has become like a snack, right? Like it's like, you, it's probably like something you eat every day now. Like people, like that's how we've oh, yeah. been trained, which is not how, right? It, oh, it's yeah. almost should be the luxury is when you eat meat, right? It's maybe once a week or something like that. Yeah. I mean, we're not, we're not so far away from our genetic, like hunter gatherer cousins, you know, like it's not meat should not be an everyday, uh, you know, part of your diet. It really should be eaten, you know, less frequently. And we've definitely moved into this, into this, you know, diet style where I think that the vast majority, especially of Americans, uh, have meat as a part of their diet almost daily. And typically that meat is unhealthy meat. So, yeah, I mean, the, the nutritional aspects, I think, are critical as well. That's a really important piece of the puzzle. And you are what you eat and what you're eating is what it eats. Right. So mm-hmm. like it, it goes down yeah. the chain if you're if you're eating an animal that was solely eating, you know, non-nutritional grains its entire life to get fat as quickly as possible. Well, you're just kind of extending that into your own diet once you sit down to eat a steak from an animal that was produced that way. When you talk to like ranchers and, and farmers, are they on like their second, third, fourth generation maybe even, or is it is it new farmers or ranches coming into these lands and, and trying to figure out a way to make them more organic and regenerative? Or is it still the families that have been there for so long trying to sort of 
reinvent their land? It's really a mix. Um, we, we definitely see like legacy ranchers and families and we work with a number of them. And we have a, a fair amount of kind of like young up and coming individuals who are mm-hmm. just trying to, you know, figure out a alternative to the nine to five, you know, like metropolitan grind and, and want to do something different with their lives. So we do see a mix. I, w- I would say, you know, get, getting into ranching can be pretty cost prohibitive. It obviously requires a lot of resource, land resource. Right. Um, so we do tend to see, you know, ranchers that that have been doing it for a while or their families have been doing it for a while. But I think what's really cool is is kind of working with those old school families, whether it's still that like mm-hmm. older generation that's that's working that land and trying to figure out what to do uh, better with it. Or it's like the younger generation that is taking it over from their you know mother or father. And they're way more concerned about environmental outcomes and impact. And they're looking at this, you know, 1200 acre property and saying, how can we do this better? Like, what can we do differently about, you know, the management of this land this time around now that it's kind of passing generations and, and try to have this net positive impact. You mentioned uh, land to market uh, before the, the first sort of Turkey is sort of labeled that way. Yeah. What, what is that? What does that actually mean? Like, like <laughs> how, how do we define sort of what that is and, and why is that different? And maybe, uh, yeah, what makes so it important, important, I guess. Yeah, for sure. You, you know, it's, it's, it's really this kind of movement towards regenerative agriculture at large. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, and again, it's kind of like a, a new term and it really is reflective on, on how we used to manage our lands. Um, that used to be the standard was regenerative agriculture because you were trying to get the most out of your land and you wanted it to be mm-hmm. as healthy as possible. And you weren't, you know, row cropping and like pounding your soil with fertilizers to force it to r- raise your next harvest of the same crop. Um, you know, you were trying to manage a biodynamic, um, you know, piece of property where you could raise, you know, tomatoes during one season and kale at a different season and then run your animals through your fields and naturally till them. But the regenerative like land to market EOV certification, that really is a process of measuring the impact, the positive impact that you're having on your land through the management of your land. And so what that certification is doing is it's measuring the organic matter that is in your soil. And it's measuring it at the same place, in the same place, over a period of five years and longer. So they're actually able to tell whether or not your practices are improving your Mm. your soil's organic matter. And then there's a lot of net positive impact if you are improving the organic matter that comes out of that. I want to talk about scale a little bit and how we you, you sort of can scale regenerative, right? And, and maybe the, the model that, that you're looking at right now, is this model sort of scalable, right? And, and how is that done? How can we, you mentioned access earlier, how can more people have access to this type of, of food, right? And how do we make it somewhat affordable? Anytime you do anything like the right way, it's going to be more expensive than a commoditized, you know, factory factory way, right? It, it, that's just is what it is. Healthy. Part, part of the deal. Yeah. 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 So, but how do we at least scale it? How do we get to a point where those things come together and it is fairly affordable and it's accessible for for the masses right so where this is much more the norm yeah i think i think there's a number of 
paths that, that can lead to a more scalable system and more affordable food, et cetera. Um, you know, we, we really believe in this decentralized model, right? So kind of like bringing food production back to your regional communities and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. kind of creating, investing in the infrastructure that allows for there to be these micro regional food hubs that are servicing, feeding their direct communities uh, versus this industrialized centralized model. But I think that, you know, the reason why food is so cheap in America is because of the subsidies. Um, And so we're we're subsidizing this style of food production, this industrialized Mm. GMO style of food production at a a very, very high level. So if we switch those subsidies around and start to prioritize and subsidize this other style of food production, this regenerative style of food production, a more sustainable style of food production, then all of a sudden we're getting our, our regional communities involved with their own food production, but also the subsidies that go along with that. Yeah, that's interesting because we sort of subsidize unhealthy foods at scale, really. <laughs> you know, At scale, we but, do, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That's, it, that's a, it's a big part of what allows those industries to be so successful are the subsidies. Without the subsidies, Th- those foods would not be so cheap. Well, and it, and it, we always talk about ancillary effects, right? When when you subsidize unhealthy food, you're you scale illness and sickness and unhealthy individuals, which then, you know, healthcare costs go way up, right? And nobody exactly. wants to really, you know, there's such a divide with universal healthcare, and we might not even need to go down that route if we had better, if we subsidize more healthier food. Overall, less people would get sick cost of healthcare will go down. I mean, obviously that's a simple way to put it, but at scale that, that get you equalizes a lot less, a lot less sick people, you know, you add more healthy people to a population, healthcare costs will probably go down. Do you talk to legislators at all, um, whether it's California or other States, or even just locally, right? Whether it's a region about legislation for subsidies for help for regenerative products or organic? We don't directly, but there's so many nonprofits that we interact with that are trying to get those policies um, into our local governments and into, even to our federal systems. And those are really kind of our voice, that those, those nonprofits and other entities that are really trying to make a, a difference at that level. Yeah, I mean, it's really important that they are doing that work as well as it, as it does support all of the work that we're doing within the regional food systems. You talked about these regional food hubs how is that duplicatable within regions, right? You mentioned your sort of Bay Area, Oakland, California, but like, what does it look like if somebody in, you know, Iowa wants to do this, right? Or some, somebody in Louisiana or, you know, Kansas or something like that. Like, what does it look like to, is Creamco looking at that? It's like, hey, how can we duplicate our model into different regions around the country or even spread it out to California more? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We, we, we definitely are. So, I mean, in our 2022 plan is to is kind of to bring this model to Southern California. And after that, we're looking at different areas within the country as well. And so, you know, like the Creamco model, for instance, is like the cream of the crop, right? We're not trying to race at the bottom. We're not trying to be the biggest meat company, meat processor um, in the area. We're trying to work with these really great regional uh, producers and aggregate them and then give them access to bigger marketplaces, kind of bridge the gap between farm direct quality and broadline efficiency of distribution. And again, create that access. Um, but I think it's very, you know, it's, it's very scalable. We, we just have to invest. I mean, it, it definitely needs more investment. Um, we, we can't allow 
you know, four companies to dominate mm-hmm. 80% yeah. of America's meat production. We, we need to kind of, again, decentralize how we approach these problems and so that we're not so reliant on so few to feed the world. When you're talking about getting these these sort of regional hubs up and going, is that just getting, uh, you know, five or six ranches or farms involved or, you know, sign on the data line, whatever it may be, get them in a partnership for this to occur? Like, what does it look like to have these hubs sort of pop up? I think it kind of, you know, a lot of this infrastructure is out there, right? A, a lot of like mm-hmm. the, the USDA, the old USDA infrastructure still exists. It's in disrepair. It needs investment. It needs to kind of get gussied up and get new tools and retooling to be able to handle network of further processors, co-packers like Creamco, and reinvesting in those entities and building them back up. That's what's going to allow for regional food producers to have more access and a more competitive marketplace for them to go to, to get their products harvested and out into the marketplace. Um, and so that's really where what, what needs to happen. That's the next step uh, is just a reinvestment in the infrastructure of old uh, to kind of create these hubs. Until we do that, it's going to be very difficult. The large players, the, like the, mm-hmm. the industrial like slaughterhouses that are harvesting 2,000, 3,000 head of cattle a day, they, they mm. literally cannot work with a small producer that is harvesting, you know, 10 head of cattle every other week or 10 head of cattle a month. They, they just don't have the tooling to do that. It's massively inefficient because these plants have been built from the ground up to harvest 2,000, 3,000 head of cattle. And so if that's all that we're left with, then the only players that are going to be able to participate are going to be these large industrialized players. It's really about reinvesting into our smaller food hubs. That's the first step in creating a more resilient, decentralized regional marketplace. And that investment comes from investors, maybe venture capital firms or just private equity, but then also investment from local legislature to maybe subsidize, just like as we subsidize, you know, Tesla's. Or we now, I think there's a provision in the infrastructure bill where they subsidize electric bikes. There's sort of the subsidizing of uh, EV vehicles or mobility instead of subsidizing, obviously, you know, gas automobiles or something like that. Is there the same? It seems like there would be a, the same switch needs to be taken, whereas you equate oil and gas to, you know, the old way of, of farm, you know, slaughterhouses, factory farms, or growing with hormones and pesticides, instead of subsidizing that, subsidize the new regenerative model, that would seem to be a needed investment as well. And also consumers, right? You need the consumers to invest with their dollars saying we want this in order to scale. So it sounds like all three of those com- components are needed perhaps oh yeah definitely yeah i mean you know it's 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 getting you know vc involved private equity and it's also i think like the the acknowledgement that this is important um like that needs to happen i think as as a society that like you know eating healthier to your earlier point like that's a preventative measure that we could take for the health of the nation investing having kind of like that value proposition be attractive uh, to a VC, to a private equity mm-hmm. firm to, you know, have subsidies in place. The USDA actually released a, a pretty sizable sum of, of grants for small processors to expand their facilities or 
upgrade from a state inspected facility to a federally inspected facility. Um, so there is some movement in that space. There's some acknowledgement that this is important. I think definitely in light of how poorly our industrial system failed us during COVID, uh, we saw mm -hmm. plants just shutting down like left and right because of the way that they're built in these very kind of dense environments with thousands of people working in them. And, mm -hmm. and the, the federal government kind of, you know, looked up, it's like, ah, like that's dangerous because if JBS goes down for two days, right. we've, we've interrupted a massive part of our food supply chain. So there is some acknowledgement that this is important. And there's definitely a lot of reporting out there that, hey, like we have a failing production system. We have a, a failing decentralized production system. We're too heavily reliant on these industrial players. So there is some acknowledgement, um, but you know, it's, it's often tough to find investors in the space because we, we now have a kind of like a VC uh, tech culture of investment where right. people are expecting like a, you know, 20X return on their investments and right. in food production, like that's not a realistic kind of return. Right. I want to talk a little bit, we'll, we'll end here uh, a little bit of the future and, and kind of maybe what success looks like for you. What does that look like for you and the team, you know, maybe three to five years down the line? What are some of the successes that you perhaps want to see or just maybe some of the goals that you have in mind? Yeah, I mean, success, I think for us, looks like a, a, a ever-growing network of mm -hmm. amazing farmers, just like beautiful farmers with, with really unique, diverse offerings, unique land that's being managed properly, uh, species being brought to market that ha have not been seen for a long time, different heritage breeds, different types of rabbits and guineas and pheasants, et cetera, kind of creating just a more diverse landscape to food and really supporting our local ranching communities to, to raise those animals and, and feel good about it and be able to make a profit while doing so. So for us, you know, we, we always kind of approach first and foremost, the industry from a culinary point of view, and then from an impact point of view. Um, so we're really focused on like, how do we keep food interesting? How do we keep it diverse? Like, how do we keep these heritage breeds at play and not just lose them to commoditized industrialized players? Um, so if we're able to do that over the next three to five years, kind of really continue to build out this model and, and keep things interesting and impactful as we scale, that's going to be success for us. Well, amazing, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's such an interesting topic and I've been diving deeper into it to, to understand the supply chains more, understanding what's coming down the line. There's, there's a ton of innovations in food technology. Like you said, I mean, we talk about supply chains a lot. It's, it's how do you build a sustainable, regenerative supply chain from the ground up is essentially the, the struggle and what kind of has to be done. You know, they, they kind of have a monopoly on supply chains, yeah, <laughs> you know, these big, yeah. these, these big production, these uh, factory farms and these production companies, they, they straight have a monopoly on supply chain. So like, unless there's another one created, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be tough to compete. So like we said earlier, I mean, investment from all angles, hopefully can come in from private and public capital being injected into, you know, having competition, right. And that what the, you know, our markets are supposed to be. That's you don't have competition, but we don't, you know, in this aspect. So yeah, uh, that's what's healthy. We need more competition. We need less of a monopoly on the system. And, and through that, it'll be more diverse and just uh, healthier for, for us and for the planet. Awesome. Well, 
best of luck the, ne the next year and, and the next decade to come. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having us.